This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Many people have paraphrased, of course, uh, Chesterton's famous phrase, and I will paraphrase it as well because it's much longer in reality, uh, but uh, the famous line that has uh, fairy tales, right? Uh, uh, don't tell children that monsters are real. Um, children already know that monsters are real. Fairy tales tell children that monsters can be killed, right? And that's the horror genre in a sense. It's a fairy tale for adults. Um, we like to see horror films because we like the possibility that monsters, yes, <laughs> are real, but they can be killed, they can be exorcised in one way or another, right? And uh, I think this is, this is a great film precisely because as I was watching it again, I thought, what a great tale. What are the monsters here? Uh, first, what I uh, took out of the film, which is so incredible, uh, the notion of these three generations of women, right? Three because there is the mother, too, the mother that is not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that left the inscription on the book, right? The one that would have liked her daughter to be fulfilled, to be a doctor, right? And then there is the mother uh, who has to protect the daughter, but she is also torn, right? She also wants protection. And then the daughter, of course, who knows that <coughs> monsters are real? And uh, she would be uh, six or seven, so she would have known nothing but war in her life, right? Because she would have been born at the beginning of the war. This is the end of the war. This is 1988. The war lasted between 1980 and 1988. And just uh, a, a brief uh, note, note on the idea, uh, this, uh, the war followed the 1979 revolution, right? And the point was, uh, you know, in a nutshell, uh, that Iraq thought they could just uh, catch Iran unprepared. And uh, for a while they did. And then Iran fought back. Uh, and I was listening to some of the lines in the film, and they echoed some of the interviewed, the interviews I remember reading uh, with people who had gone through the Iraq-Iran war, uh, when uh, the quote says, our men are uh, becoming martyrs to protect those values, right? And, and the women are supposed to uh, be, you know, kind of reverse of this conservative, uh, uh, theocratic environment precisely because the men are sacrificed. Uh, but there were many interviews that actually corroborate that. I mean, the idea that men believed uh, that they were doing God's work. I mean, when they were fighting, uh, they were fighting the invasion, and they did. And eventually, the war, the swords of the war, were completely overturned, and then uh, Iran became right the uh, uh, the one con- that continued the war. Iraq wanted to finish it, and then Iran continued. So for eight years, uh, the age of this child, the child would have been born during the war and have n- known uh, nothing but that war. So I thought there were so many interesting things about you know the claustrophobia, this kind of house that has, you know, you go up and down and there is no respite. So, here are our, you know, uh, two guests, uh, Nate and uh, Lucan, and they're going to talk a little bit about the conditions in which, so my first question was actually to Lucan, who is uh, uh, the, uh, uh, he, you are uh, at the head of Wigwam, right? And you were saying, why did you call it Wigwam? There are three people in that. In that production company. Well, firstly, thank you very much, guys, for having us here. It's been a real thank you. Sweet coming. Um, 
And uh, when, when Nate invited me along, and when the guys invited me along here, I thought it would kind of just be a fun trip out, but it's such a wonderful campus, and this theatre is fantastic, and such a great arena to show this film. Um, your question about Wigwam, I think my partners would probably cry if you said I was the head of Wigwam, but there are, there are kind of three of us, and um, we kind of came up with a name because I think a Wigwam kind of has three kind of pods, like a tripod, so the three of us lean against each other, and if we're not there, one of us disappears, the other two fall over, but then we find out a Wigwam is actually a dome, so it doesn't make sense anymore. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, Nate, how did you get involved with this film? So Without making it too long of a story, uh, you know, we, Lucan and I met through uh, industry friends, and um, I actually have to credit my business partner, Todd, um, who read the script from when it was submitted to us from Lucan, because I think I was too busy, and I sent it off to Todd. And no, he, we sent it directly to Todd, <laughs> the brands. And he, uh, he called me, and he said, it's brilliant. He said, this is exactly what we've been looking for. And, and truly, I mean, we had been looking for... Uh, um, well, first off, I'd wanted to, I'd wanted to work with Lucan and, and, and Wigwam, and we wanted to collaborate. But what, what made this special for us is that we had been looking for a voice from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited about genre coming from that region because a lot of films that were being produced in that region were for that region. You know, they were very specifically for that uh, audience. Uh, and there were a lot of dramas and comedies, and they didn't travel. They, they didn't find audiences outside of their, their local. Mm. And so when I read this, I said, this is a film that has a chance to give, uh, you know, granted a UK-Iranian director right. a voice, but about a story that took place in Tehran at this time. And so once we saw that, we said we had to be involved. And I'm glad we did. And this is an incredible international effort. I mean, this is okay. So the woman who plays Shide uh, is I Iranian and German, right? Uh, the film is British produced, and uh, it was shot in Jordan, right? And then... <laughs> with, with some Qatari money from the Dora Film with Institute. Qatari money. <laughs> and submitted for the Academy Awards. From the UK. <laughs> So I thought it was just uh, terrific. I mean, the whole combination of talents that are uh, that are coming through. Uh, so um, I mean, let me let me ask you the, the, the dumbest question: How did you feel when he was nominated? Um, I guess massively out of my depth. Um, you know, this little film we put together in 2015, last year, last last March, and it was. It was just such a wonderful little film. It was, it was super low budget. We shot it in Jordan in 21 days. And, you know, we really backed the filmmaker and we loved him and, and we would have kind of run through walls for him. Um, you know, when we actually saw the first cut of the film, we kind of felt it was, you know, there was potentially something really special. And we showed it to the guys at XYZ and they kind of shouted it was a little bit special. That was kind of the moment for us when we knew, you know, we had to give it a, kind of a push. Um, we got the news from the UK, from BAFTA, that we were, we were being submitted about four or five weeks ago. And, as I say, just massively out of our depth. You know, for a film like this, it's a genre film. The Academy, you know, historically doesn't love genre. Right. Um, but what we see in this film you know, are a lot of other you know, tropes of you know, not genre. You know, you've got a feminist political drama at the heart of it. You've got um, you know, social issues dealing with the war in Iran and Iraq. But... You know, we wrap it all up in a kind of genre wrapper that 
it, it makes it feel relevant and contemporary and cool and different. And you know what? I just, fingers crossed, I hope people see that there's um, a social and political story at the heart of it, and it's not just a kind of horror story that the Academy may not get behind. And it's important to mention that the, this, this whole thing started at Sundance this year. So we premiered the movie as the opening night uh, midnight film there. And it was, a, it was a long discussion because they were offering us competition at the festival. And we talked a lot about whether or not this film benefits from being you know, classified as a horror film by being relegated to this genre category right. within the festival. Right. And I think I'm really glad because then we went on to South by Southwest. We were selected as the opening night film at MoMA in New York, which is very rare right. for a horror film. Right. So I think the path for it has kind of been um, enabling it to be able to be eventually, I guess, selected by BAFTA. Yeah. Um, there are many uh, of my students here, and we have been talking about uh, production and distribution at the beginning of the class. Can you tell us a little bit, actually, in general, what a producer, what a person who is trying to distribute a film do? Um, I, I guess the job of a producer is kind of broad and, and, and very diverse. I mean, I think it means many different things in the UK and, and the US. Um, you know, in the UK, we typically we look for our content. You know, we come up with ideas. We come, we, we search, and we scour for the right writer to bring it to life. We look for the right filmmaker to pull it together, and we cast it, we finance, we package it, we produce it, and then we sell it. Um, in the US, it's kind of different. Though producers mean something slightly different. But um, you know, I, I think from from my perspective, you know, we we were involved at the content stage, and I think you have financing and packaging producers, and you have development and you know, creative producers. And I think what we pride ourselves on is finding talent, creating content, and, and using and working with friends and partners like XYZ to help find a home for that content. Yeah, in addition to working together as producers on movies, you know, in this particular case, where we're acting as a distribution company slash sales company because we're actually facilitating distribution for this film globally. So one thing to mention is that you know, this film will eventually be on Netflix globally. And it will be available to subscribers of Netflix um, at that point in time globally on the same day everywhere, wherever there's subscribers around the world. But we also had to facilitate a release for this movie prior to its eventual Netflix uh, streaming date to give it a theatrical distribution life um, in addition to other media exploitation. So... You know, in terms of what we're doing right now, I mean, we're about to release the film. October 7th is the actual official date of release in most of the world, ex outside of the UK. The UK is actually releasing this weekend. 30th. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Today. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, tonight. And, um, <laughs> and uh, that's one of the reasons why, by the, by the way, Babak, the filmmaker, couldn't be here. He would have loved to have been here. Actually, he commented on our Instagram. He's, he's very thankful that... Uh, that you welcomed this movie here. Um, but yes, so that's part of you know, the plan. So on October 7th, we're going to be starting this release of this movie, and we'll see where it goes. Where can it go? Well, it's a good question. Um, on one hand... Where can it go? It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> well, as I mentioned, Netflix is going to be receiving the movie um, in 90 days after October 7th. So at that point... We have 90 days to do everything we want to do with the film mm. until it's on Netflix. Now, it's still going to be available on iTunes. It'll have availability outside of Netflix. But they're going to be doing a big push for it at that mm. point in time. So 
for them, it's you know, hitting their global market. But what's beautiful about it, the beauty is that there's a Farsi language right. film uh, from a first-time director right. uh, that's going to now be seen in countries that have never seen a movie like this before. And Netflix is giving it that opportunity. So we're very happy to have them on board as our, um, I guess, exhibitors, distributors as well. That's that's a that's uh, a great thing. Um, speaking of, I mean, I, another aspect of the film that I really did like was uh, the uh, idea of the rational versus the supernatural, of course. But also the genie. She doesn't believe in the genie, and then eventually she realizes that there are forces right beyond her control. Right. And I love the quote: "It's an anthropological book, not a book to find answers in." Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, incidentally, the word genie is the one that we also used. You know, the, the Anybody who's seen Aladdin would know right. very well. It's the root of the word genie, right? I mean, for in English, yes. There you are. How you doing? Um, I'm Damien. Nice to meet you. Uh, no, I just wanted to ask a question about the end of the film. So, you know how the head was cut off on the stairwell and then the, the book was left? Was that like them, like, I feel like the ghost or the, how you say it, Dijon? Or? Genie? That's a mustard, I think. It's that's, what that's, what I, well, that's why I laughed the first time I heard it. I was like, is that mustard? It no, is, but... Um, j- just think gin and tonic, without oh, the tonic. Okay, all right. Yeah, I was just thinking, I was like, I felt like the, the ghost was kind of there trying to push them out to, like, for a better reason, you know? Like, that's what it felt like to me because she, she was so stubborn to just stay there and she just did not want to leave. She didn't want to leave. And, and then the ghost like, okay, like, I need y'all to get out of here, man. You're like, y'all been here way too long. You had, there's rated things on the other side, you know, and that's what I felt like. I don't know if that's what you guys are looking for, but that's, that's my interpretation, so. Um, I guess there's kind of a question there, but it's, it's um, yeah, if Babak was here, he'd probably say um, something like, that's an interesting interpretation, and I'm not here to tell you how to interpret it. Um, and, and I think as a filmmaker, that's very much how he, he sees this film. You know, there, there are lots of bits of of him in this film. It's a very personal film. You know, aside from the little girl being a seven-year-old girl, you can essentially say it's a seven-year-old babak kind of living with his parents. And, and I think a lot of this story is so personal. And you know, what he always makes clear to us if we're doing these Q&As with Adam is that it's not up to us or him to interpret the film for the audience. It's about how you guys see it. And you, know, you can watch the film five times and see it five different ways. And I think... You know, what you said is a, is, a, is a great interpretation of the ending. You know, it, it, it really it, it does sum up very nicely where she gets to and her state of mind, which is so important at that time. You know, it's kind of that escape, and I think it's um, you know, it's it's really interesting. All right. Hello, my name. Oh, okay, my name is Jasmine. Um, not asking about interpretation, but what exactly was the plan or the reason that the mute boy was in the story exactly if babak were here um, <laughs> sorry um, that, 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 that's kind of interesting I, I think what he symbolizes is is kind of um he symbolizes part of the war you know at the end of the day he's He's from a family that's been lost in the war. He's been heavily damaged, and he, he's there to kind of represent all of those horrors, but kind of do it in a, in a kind of silent, mute kind of way. Um, but, you know, I, I think Babak ha- has played with that as well. And I, when we were going through the development process and script, that was a very you know, you know, key part of the process. You know, th- this guy's creepy and weird. You know, you see him poking a cat with a stick at the top. It's like, what's he actually doing? But, 
you know, I, I think, again, it's, it's your interpretation of why he's there. Um, but I, I think he's there to symbolize the war and the horrors of the war and the effects of the war and the people that kind of you know, live within close proximity of, of a protagonist. Thank you. Sorry if that didn't answer it. Oh, it's fine. Very clearly. Hi. So we always hear about the stigma about child actors, and I wanted to say that the young lady in this film carried successfully carried a huge part of the narrative. And I was wondering if you could tell us about the process of not only finding her but of her on set. I can definitely do this one. Um, <laughs> this this little girl is like so cool. She's um, she's a refugee actually. And she's a refugee from Iran, and her and her family live in the UK. Um, and believe it or not, she's never acted before. And that's, this is the first time she's been on screen. And what we kind of loved about her were all of those natural reactions. You, know, you see her kind of shrugging her shoulders, or like just tutting, or you're looking you know, directly into the camera at some point, saying, oh, God, what are you doing? But, you know, she's, she was generally being a natural seven-year-old girl in front of a camera for the first time. Um, and it's kind of funny, like three days before we, we were set to shoot, we didn't have a visa to get her into the country. You know, It's fine if you've got a British passport, but having an Iranian passport and then UK refugee papers and then leaving the UK to come to a country which doesn't necessarily welcome Iranians to it, it it's pretty difficult. And I think three days out, we were still kind of crossing our fingers and toes that, that she might get in. But you know, in terms of working with her, she was just kind of kind of easy and great you know she was kind of sick for the first 10 or 12 days and you know as the film kind of plays out she's getting sicker and sicker and sicker and fever is breaking and and I guess you know either she was it was psychosomatic and she was kind of feeling the script and feeling the story but you know she was she was genuinely kind of getting fevers and anything that could go wrong in those first 10 12 days you was going wrong. We were stopping shooting for you know, four hours to take her to the hospital to kind of uh, get injections and flu shots and all sorts of things. But you know, just in terms of her resilience as a kind of seven or eight-year-old girl on a movie set for the first time, shooting whatever the legal requirement is for a number of hours per day, <laughs> um, we were shooting that number, and she was she was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and um, you know, I think you know if she can manage to handle the diva inside, she'll, uh, she'll have a, a fun career ahead of her. Uh, she reminded me a little bit of, of uh, the White Balloon uh, Kid. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. This I haven't I'd, seen it. It sounds, uh, sounds like an obscure film reference, and you've got me. Aida Mohamed Kani It's the name of the little girl. And it's this kind of incredible. Where do you find all these incredibly talented kids in Iran? I mean, it's just, yeah. just they seem to be all from there. But she, she, she was so fantastic. I mean, she, her, aside from her diet, which consisted of Kentucky Fried Chicken and <laughs> like just just non like normal food, we had we had a catering truck which was fantastic. If you like hard boiled eggs and pita bread, but she was very much about her Kentucky Fried Chicken and, and McDonald's. She was lovely. Uh, in Jordan. In Jordan. Jesus. <laughs> That's fantastic. Hi, um, first I want to say thank you very much for bringing this movie. It was awesome. Um, thank you for thanks. watching it. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask how you guys got started with your careers, not necessarily with school, but like how you got to where you are today, just through everything else. Well, um, I, after I left uh, UC Santa Barbara, um, in some part with the help of Janet Walker, Thank you, by the way, for the nice words that you said earlier. Um, I, I went to UCLA 
uh, for graduate school, and I met my business partners there. And we went off and kind of started our own careers separately in different fields. And actually, quickly thereafter, which was in 2008 when we officially started our company, which is called XYZ Films, um, you know, we believed in our various skill sets kind of coming together and doing something entrepreneurial. And we believed in content, and we believed in um, ourselves to sort of create a company, which was probably the worst time to start a company, which is like the deep recession. But somehow, some way, um, we managed to kind of get through that. And it's truly, it's been you know out of believing in filmmakers and, and identifying talent, and also aligning with producers around the world. I mean, one of the things that we really believe in is you know Hollywood and Los Angeles, if you will, but call it Hollywood. Um, is, is a hub, but it's one of many hubs around the world when it comes to filmmaking and uh, the producing of content. And so I really believe that one place where we could prosper is to identify partners around the world. And I mean Asia, South America, Australia, every continent, Wigwam in the UK. And it's identifying partners that we can build slates of movies with and TV content with. And so that's, that's basically where the idea came from. And one step at a time. You know, we've done 30 movies in eight years as a production company, and we're involved with you know the distribution or sales of you know much more than that. And it's really just finding great partners. That's much better than mine. I know. Um, yeah, I, I didn't have a traditional film background aside from watching films when I was kind of young. Um, and you know, coming from Northern Ireland, it's always about finding a career that's vocational. Um, whether it's banking or finance or lawyering or chemical engineering in my case. Um, but I, I ended up working in finance and venture capital until kind of 2007, 2008. Um, and then I kind of just got a little bit bored of it and kind of felt that what I was doing wasn't really best representing me and what I wanted to do and what I was passionate about. You know, putting numbers in boxes is a great, fun thing to do. But um, I think, you know... Film was my passion. I watched a lot of film. I talked about it. I watched the kind of obscure films that no one else really watches, but I guess we're in a room of film students, so you've probably watched all of them. Um, but, you know, my, my career started in 2009, and I, I said I need to shoot a short film. So I wrote and shot a short film, which was kind of fun and cool, and that got me hooked. I set my production company up in 2011, um, and we shot our first film kind of six months after, which was kind of a fun learning experience to see whether you want to make a film and whether you enjoy the process. But for me, it was about running a business. And I saw each film as a little business. You know, it's like I'm the CEO of this little film, but at the same time, I can do three or four at the same time, which made it much more interesting and varied than what I was doing prior to that. Um, you know, we've got four films, you know, four films later, it's 2016. You know, we have a fairly robust film slate and TV slate, which is building. And I guess, you know, it's all about finding, for me anyway, finding you know, what you actually want to do and what kind of gets you excited and what makes you wake up in the morning and go, you know what, I kind of enjoy earning no money, making indie films that may or may not work. And that's kind of it. Did that answer it? So what is, what is the pitch that conquers you? What is the pitch that really makes you go like, wow, this is a great film? With the pitch, I, I think it, for me it's about filmmaker. Um, you know, first and foremost, it's building foundations, and I think content's at the heart of what we do. Um, as a company, a lot of our films have social and political issues running through the heart of them. Um, 
you know, we look to make them commercial by wrapping them up in kind of a genre wrapper, which is, you know, you look at this film, it's a, you can look at it as a feminist political film or you can look at it as a horror film, but we think we're telling a story and we're educating people about a period that was, you know, kind of fascinating. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of our films do that. You know, we just shot a film together, um, which was a Netflix original called Eye Boy, which on the surface is a teen superhero film. Um, but it deals with gang rape, it deals with gang culture, it deals with social issues, it deals with you know, the UK economy, it deals with politics. And I think you know, for us what's important first and foremost is always content. Um, and after that it's, it's finding the right filmmaker to bring it to life. One of the things I, um, I advise my colleagues and staff on is I said when you hear a great idea, be thinking about who's the right storyteller for it. Right. And what we've tried to do is build um, an arsenal, as I like to describe it. It's aggressive, but it's the way I like to look at it, which is a, a list of filmmakers that we currently work with that we love, filmmakers that we know but we haven't worked with yet but we want to, and filmmakers that we don't know and we haven't worked with yet but we also want to. And always be thinking about these people. Now, of course, there are filmmakers like Babak who walk into the door right. and they pitch you a story or something that's original. And you're blown away by it, and you take a and you take a leap of faith, and we do that. You know, that's one of the things that we do at, at our company is we we make first time director movies, mm. but we we ha- we have to believe. You know, and it's not just out of business or commerce. It's it comes from a truly you know creative place where we go. This is somebody who could be, uh, you know, a you know a game changer when it comes to being a storyteller and a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, th- th- that's actually a really interesting point in terms of, uh, of kind of finding those voices to, to make your films. And, you know, a great example is Babak on this film. You know, we, we kind of went out looking for elevated genre, smart genre stuff when it was cool to use those terms. Um, but, you know, it, for us, Babak came through the door. He pitched us on this project. And as much as we loved the content and saw the scope to make something cool and different and in Farsi language, which everyone said, do not do, He's the filmmaker, and we believed in his voice. And he was an editor at MTV for eight years, cutting Jersey Shore and things that kind of really got him excited. <laughs> and, you know, I, I remember to this day, you, know, you build relationships with these people day one. And I remember him saying, can you tell me when we're green lit? And I said, why? And he said, because I need to quit my job. And he, every day for, like, two weeks, said, are we green lit? Uh, Close, close, closer, and I think you know, a week and a half in, I was like, kind of knew we were greenlit, but wasn't confirmed. So, yeah, we're done. And he phoned me 20 minutes later, I've just quit. When do I start? And I'm like, um, give us a couple of days. <laughs> but it is about those relationships. As Nate says, it's about building up. You know, when we set out as a company, we didn't have the ability to go and speak to big directors to, hey, we've got this cool project, come and work on it. Well, who are you and why would I work with right. an untested producer? So you have to make and build these relationships and find them early, nurture, and kind of follow them around and grab onto their coattails for as long as they let you. And of course, as an editor, he had a great talent. I mean, there are some transitions in this film that are terrific. Yeah. Uh, the sound, the toast... <laughs> coming up and marking and everybody's scared of the toast <laughs> it, 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 yeah I mean scared of a piece of toast I mean who eats carbs these days <laughs> um, 
But, you know, he's, I mean, that, that's exactly it. I, I, was, I think I mentioned over dinner tonight, you know, he, as, a, as an editor, we had 40 minutes left on some of the scenes. And I said to him, dude, we've got another 40 minutes. Let's do another setup, get the coverage, get more, get what you want. He says, I've got this. It's fine. I got it. Right. He, he's incredible. We were just in New Orleans together. We were doing research on a project that's going to be one of Babak's next films. And um, it will be in English and it will be a bigger film in terms of budget and scope. But we were, we were doing research, and we walked in. We were researching dive bars, which, of course, made this a very fun trip. And we get to this bar, and he walks in, and he just sees it. You know, like, he, he looked at us, and he started walking around the bar. There was, like, a pool table and some people, you know, drinking at, like, 11 a.m. And, that was uh, us, man. That was us, too. And he walks around the pool table three times, walks up to me, and he goes, thank you so much for bringing me here. Oh. This is it. And it wasn't that we were going to shoot there. It was he captured, yes. he knew exactly, he started to see the scenes. Right. You know, and he started to actually edit in his mind exactly how the story was going to unfold and how the transitions were going to be. And that's the sign of a great storyteller, an amazing filmmaker. Absolutely. Hi, this question is for Nate. Um, being that the film is categorized in a foreign language category, how does that campaign work for the Oscars? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so as everyone knows here, there's the foreign language Oscar category. And so every year, one film is ultimately wins the best foreign language film, and the director actually receives that award. Um, but five films are nominated for that category, and they're from various different nations around the world. And the UK, like any international country, is, is given um, the chance to submit a film for that. And, you know, being... You know, UK, I mean, you could speak more as, a, you know, as someone who lives in the UK, but there are a lot of films that get made there that aren't English language. You know, for example, we worked on a film last year that was from Ireland that was actually shot entirely in Cuba and is actually Spanish language. And it was shortlisted for the Oscars. So it was actually technically, um, you know, from that nation, but of a different language. And it's the same thing for Under the Shadow. This was produced by a company that is um, from the UK. Babak lives in the, in the UK. So it's a British film. I mean, through and through. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. I, I think from the UK, you get an opportunity to kind of work with great talent over there. Babak is a British Iranian director. He holds a British passport. And, and I think you know, getting the UK submission has been great. But the, the process moving out is, is now really difficult. You, know, you end up you know, competing against 80 or 90 films from different countries around the world. The Academy votes. And there's a short list of nine films. Um, and from the nine, it then gets whittled down to, to five, which are the nominations. And it's politics, it's money, it's power, it's all of those things. But ultimately, you know, good films stand the test. And I think, um, you know, getting, um, getting submissions, you know, a big thing in itself. But the reality is it's, it's, it's just the beginning of the process. Um, are there any Academy members here tonight? <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of a, a long road in. Hi, so thank you for bringing this film. It was pretty great. I got really scared. <laughs> but um, I noticed that you gave the djinn two forms. And originally it began as a sort of humanoid form, and we just see the foot coming out of the ceiling. And, but then it became the, the shadow of a woman wrapped in a cloth. What is the purpose of the two different forms? Like, does the humanoid represent her husband, and then the cloth represents her mom? Or where are you guys going with that? If Babak was here, <laughs> um, 
I, I think the interpretation of that's kind of interesting because you, you, you've, got, um, you've got a woman who's kind of slowly unraveling and going mad, and the reality is, did you see it or did you not? You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't tell you how to interpret it, but is she seeing that? Is that human form real? Is that the guy that she resuscitated under the missile? Who knows? Um, you know, the reality is that it's what's going on in her mind and what you know, she's seen, and, and I guess you know, the interpretation could be whichever way you want it to be, you know. Sorry, that's vague as hell, but... Hi. Um, Hi. So what was the hardest scene to shoot? Because some of them were really, like, the cloth, when both the mother and the daughter under the cloth seems kind of complicated, but what was the hardest to shoot? Well, Uh, our guest did get stuck in the (laughs) the tie, right? She did get stuck. Yeah, we have, um, I mean, there are a couple of really fun scenes. Like, that... that, um, that scene with them under the, I guess, sheet, gin. Um, that was kind of all shot kind of in camera. That was an actual sheet. And then we had a really great VFX company that kind of helped blow it up and make it look, look really cool and fun and kind of a little bit different. Um, but like, we had some really difficult scenes. Like, you, you know, um, when the lead actress is climbing up the stairs in that black, gooey mess. So we, we genuinely thought, you know, we're not going to do CGI. We're going to use actual cornstarch. Um, and someone got the mixture slightly wrong. <laughs> so it, it kind of became cement or concrete, and she was kind of in there, and try, you know, trying to pull her foot out of it was exactly that difficult. Like, she fell over, it was horrible, it was horrific. It was the last night of the shoot. I had her shouting at me, I had the little girl shouting at me, and it was kind of like, all right, cool, I love making films. Um, and the other scene is, is actually... Um, which other scene? Driving out of that garage door... That was which you. was my cameo kind of role, I guess. The, um, we, had this, we, had, we had a stunt driving scene, which our stunt driver didn't turn up. So we ran on and ran on and ran on. And it was kind of 3 a.m. in the morning, and the stunt driver just wasn't there. And I made a joke in one of the production meetings. It was kind of like, it's just driving through a gate. I'll do it. Easy. <laughs> and, of course, 3 o'clock, 3.30, we need to shoot this. So the production director says, well, you said it, do it. And your, and your hair is uh, as long as... No, yeah. it, it was kind of, yeah. Um, so, I, so I kind of... Uh, I sat in the car and I said, I was genuinely only joking, and can we get one of the runners to drive? And the production designer said, you know what, there's a really good chance the windscreen could shatter and he could die and we're not insured, so you're the only one to do it. <laughs> and I was kind of like, <laughs> all right. So we had, a, we had one go at that, and... Yeah, fortunately, I'm an incredible driver. If anyone <laughs> needs to reverse through a door, I'm your man. And a committed producer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, when, when you're working with such a large budget, you, know, you can afford to <laughs> take those risks. Your life is the cheapest commodity. <laughs> Hi. Um, Can you discuss any challenges that you faced in using horror to accurately convey the psychological effects of war? Wow, a serious question. (laughs) Um, Cool. Um, Yes, I guess I can. I mean, I think for Babak and for us, horror is one of the most genuine genres of film because I was standing here as a hand smashed through a bit of glass and you guys all jumped and then had a little giggle afterwards. And, you know, for us, it's... It's exactly that. It, it, it's providing you know, a genre rapper to tell a story. And yes, this is a psychological horror which you know, sets it apart a little bit, but the reality is it's using those scares to kind, of, to kind of make people feel like they're part of this film and to kind of tie it into that psychological 
you know, I mean, unraveling that our protagonist was going through. Um, you know, we're telling a story about a, a woman in a you know, war-torn country whose husband's left her, she's looking after a daughter. And you, the reality is that's scary enough. You know, that is a scary situation, that you know, bombs could fall through the roof. You know, she's had to resuscitate an old man. And, and I think using horror to kind of elevate that story is, is what Babak wanted to do, to kind of make it you know, kind of resonate and really hit home some of those tropes of what you know, the horror of war really is like. Because you know, we could tell a very dry, bland story about the Iran-Iraq war and a woman with her son and the, the husband gone off to, to war. But the reality is it, it's tying it into something that... You know, he, he wanted to have a bit of fun with the story. You know? and, and for him, he was a wimp. I mean, he, he'll stand up here and he'll tell you he was a geeky wimp who would be scared of his own shadow. And, you know, it's, it is such a personal story for him that he wanted to kind of tell it in such a way that he could use horror and monsters to make him feel maybe a little bit less geeky, but don't tell him that. Oh, it's on camera. You're going to see it. <laughs> um, no, it, it, I, I mean, I, I hope that answered the question. It was a very intelligent and highbrow question that probably went above my head, but hopefully I got that. <laughs> but, but actually, one, one of the things I wanted to point out about that was the uh, great use of sound, because on one hand, the sound is diegetic, it's part of the bombs, this kind of hum of the war, which is right outside, falling all the time. And then it becomes this strange musical or you know, soundtrack mm-hmm. that is uh, mimicking the sound of the relentless you know, uh, war. But it's, it's no longer coming from you know, the stories, coming from you know, the non-diegetic world. So it's, I think it's, it's a great, because you never know whether you are hearing it uh, as part of the you know, of the atmosphere or whether... We always joke about the beginning. I always mess with them because I said, you know, when I was at UCSB, we watched MASH. And yes. one, of the, one of the great diegetic versus non-diegetic things is when you show the, the image of the actual horn that's like, you right. know, and you see that at the beginning. Right. And I always hold, look, and I'm like, that's a, that's a special moment for me. MASH. Yeah. Nostalgic. Uh, yeah, nostalgia is not what it used to be. Um, so... Yeah, on the. Um, this is a great book, by the way. I read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, the sound design was so important to Babak. I mean, I think if you guys noticed, there wasn't a lot of score aside from the opening sequence and the kind of end sequence. Um, plus, we had a kind of Jane Fonda workout video to yes. add a little levity. But I, sound design is such a huge part of the film for Babak. And you know, even as we were shooting, it was about that sound design and, and, and what he wanted to be you're getting from each scene. And I think, you know, you're right, it, it elevates it and it adds that extra level of tension that sometimes. scary hum. Yeah. And, right. But he used really familiar sounds at the same time right. just, just to make sure we all remember to be scared at a certain point. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's absolutely that. It's a sound design film and I think that's the, the approach Babak was after. Yeah. So you've acknowledged that this film was, you know, kind of unique and not... Like hadn't really been seen before, and so as producers on this movie, how did you go about making it? Did you have like an audience in mind, you know? And how did how do you go about distributing a movie like this? Because like you know, the whole point is to make at least some money back, like to cover. Start with the first question. You want to start with the second question? Sure. Second question. I'll start with the first. All right, go. And you can finish in sequence with it. Deal. (laughs) Um, Now you go first. (laughs) Well, I mean, look, I mean. Again, I, I think that it's important to recognize that this is a Farsi language movie and it's hard to distribute a movie 
like this to the world because it's just it's really challenging to get the average film going audience to go and watch a subtitled movie and especially when you're dealing in you know call it a horror film or whatever it, it, it's ultimately very challenging to get people to show up in a theater like a theatrical setting to do it what we what we looked for was the uniqueness as you said and the special factor. And we knew that if Babak executes the movie the way he's intending to, that it's going to eventually get top-tier festival uh, play, which it did. It premiered at Sundance and had a very long, successful road from there. And then we knew that from there, strategically speaking, that we would be able to galvanize the press and we could create something unique about the film, which, which, it, which it has. And I think that you know, critical response is huge for a movie like this. You know, we, we work on movies all the time and we don't really obsess about the press. We kind of just go about it and said, look, we're making something that people want to see and we're going to figure out how to monetize it, right? But with a movie like this, the press and the critical response is so important because people need a reason to go and watch or consume something that is different, that's a little outside the, the norm, as you said, unique. And so what we had to do was come up with a strategy that would allow for that. Netflix is one big part of it because they're going to allow for us to um, get a, a filmmaker known and a story like this seen um, by a whole lot of people very quickly. But at the same time, as we roll it out in various different territories around the world, theatrically and through other media, we're building press and awareness in all these different countries. And so going into it, look, it's extremely challenging. But when you make a, a film that's special... We believe that it has a chance to stand out, and I think that's what's happening. Cool. Um, and Percy, thank you very much for saying that it's special. It's kind of a, it was a nice little film, and we all enjoyed the process of making it, but putting it together is, you know, was one of the most difficult films of, of, of my life, and I think I'll, I'll ever have to put together. Um, you know, Babak worked with us because we were probably the only production company that was stupid enough to say, we'll shoot it in Farsi. Um, a lot of companies he spoke to and a lot of conversations he had wanted this to be shot in English. And I think, you know, we were, you know, having seen the film and had the little run it's been on, you know, it's testament to our, our conversations and resolution on this that, you know, it feels authentic. And I think watching this in English language wouldn't be the same film at all, you know. And, and financing a film that isn't in English language out of the UK from a first-time filmmaker without BFI support, without support of the industry and without support of uh, the sales companies in the UK wasn't the easiest process in the world. But, you know, um, I think it's, it's, again, testament to Babak and his vision for this film and putting him in a room with people who have money who want to part with that money is, um, is kind of great because they see what we saw in Babak. It was somebody who was passionate about this film, who saw the festival run and saw how we might be able to distribute it down the line. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased we did that. Hi. So you guys have brought up several times how, in addition to being a really effective horror movie, this movie is also a powerful feminist portrayal of these women's lives in a highly patriarchal society. So was that element of the story and of the script um, part of what helped attract you to this uh, particular movie as producers? Um, I think from our side, it was purely coincidental. Hashtag women in film. Um, it, it was kind of weird, like... Yeah. It was only when we saw a, a first cut of that film that we realised how you know, you heavily driven it was. It, you know, we have, as you mentioned, a grandmother, a mother, a daughter, and it's essentially 
women on screen for 84 minutes with a, with a few men coming in and out of the action as kind of with a bit of exposition. Um, but, yeah, it, I mean, it genuinely wasn't intentional. And I, I think, you know, as a company, as much as we want to empower you know, women or men or whoever's best for the job. It's genuinely about who's best for the role and who's best for that position. And I think putting this film together was about, you know, Babak's vision. And, you know, we realised once we cut the film that it was, it was kind of... It, it could be a feminist political drama if we wanted it to be. Uh, I, I thought the entire film was about masking tape. <laughs> you should yeah. have seen the first cut. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> kind of fighting off horror with masking tape. Which isn't, by the way, very sticky, unfortunately. Which is not very sticky. Yeah. And, and the whole idea, I mean, it reminded me of when uh, in the United States, right, we were supposed to protect ourselves by sealing all the windows, right? Remember mm -hmm. that period? I wasn't there at the time. I yeah. was not born. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm talking about a few years ago. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to seal windows with masking tape. Yes. I mean, the idea was that it would be, you know, some kind of a problem gas attack or whatever it is. Right? Wow. Um, so, uh, um, I know we bought masking tape. Uh, so, the, the whole, you know, the idea of fighting off, you know, war, horror, you know, right. whatever it is that is right outside and comes through the ceiling, but you're going to put masking tape on it, right? It, 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 that, that was one of the moments that Babak always remembered. It was like sealing his windows. And right. he, it, it does come up a lot because it was one of those lasting memories from him as, right. as a child. It's like, you know, his father sealing the windows before he went off to war. You know, right. his mother kind of always re-taping and taping and re-taping. And I think, you know, it, it also adds, you know, a level of, kind of nuttiness to her, you know, she's, she's going insane. It's right. something she sees all the time, and I think, you know, right. that also happens. I don't know if you guys noticed, but she also bites her lip a lot, you know, right. in the car, in the, in the window. It's, it's about, you know, the same thing over and over again, which I think helps her get through this kind of mundane and crazy life she's in. Well, putting the glasses back in, you know, taking them out and putting them back in, it's that, you know... I mean, to some degree, going crazy is really what's happening. Yeah. And you were saying that this was your favorite uh, poster, I mean, the one that you guys have, uh, which has the big X, right, yeah. with the mask and tape, the idea that this is, you know, this is yeah. where you're doing this to danger, and that's it. You give it to the sales companies and distributors, and they ruin a poster, honestly, every time. <laughs> you had approval. <laughs> okay. Mutual have, approval. Uh, we have time for one more question. Yes? Hi. Um, considering this film was in Farsi and most of the actors are Farsi speakers, did they speak English, most of them? And if not, how was it like working with a language barrier? Um, it was really horrible because um, normally as a producer we get to sit with some cans on and look at a monitor and go, what a brilliant take, I love that. Um, so we were watching kind of reactions and watching how it was coming together. Um, Babak had a a really clear policy of only speaking Farsi on set because he wanted everyone to be in that frame of mind. Um, although none of the crew spoke Farsi. But with, with, his, with the cast, he only spoke Farsi. And I think you know, whenever they started speaking English, he'd shut them up. It would be like, you speak Farsi and that's it. And I thought that was kind of cool and different. But, you know, when we got the first cut of the edit, there were no subtitles. But we knew the script so well inside out, we kind of watched it and we're kind of... It kind of just felt like we spoke Farsi. Um, but, yeah, it, was, it wasn't that easy, and I think you know, shooting in a foreign language isn't, isn't, isn't always um, easiest for a producer. You just have to trust your director. Thank you. Okay, so I thank everybody for coming. I thank our guests for being here. Yes, thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.